0: Drowning refugees, barbed wire fences, Russia bombs at war crime levels and NATO holds a meeting. Daring, dauntless and dodgy, do we now know what's up with the Royal Navy's Type 45 destroyers?
1: There's no doubt that uh, you wouldn't want to go on the front line with these ships.
0: And North Korea, yet another general executed why and what's next. NATO is deploying ships to the Aegean Sea to help deal with the European migrant crisis. The move follows a request for help from Germany, Turkey and Greece. Reconnaissance will also be stepped up at the border of Turkey and Syria. The NATO Secretary-General, Jens Stoltenberg, said the focus would be on stopping the people smugglers.
2: This is not about uh, stopping or pushing back refugee boats. NATO will contribute critical information and surveillance to help counter human trafficking and criminal networks.
0: Well, let's talk to BFBS reporter James Hurst, who's in Brussels where NATO's defence ministers have been meeting today. Hello, James. What's been agreed then?
1: So immediately, NATO Standing Maritime Group 2, which consists of three ships under German command at the moment, they will head straight to the Aegean. As you were saying, the focus is on surveillance, patrolling, providing information. This is not meant to be a rescue mission. But, of course, if they see a boat in distress and nobody else to help, they might have to do that. What's really interesting is that, essentially, NATO's military advisers are now looking at what more NATO might do, what more NATO might need to do. Apparently, some nations have already offered further vessels, but we don't yet know if they will be brought into play. The other big agreement here today is from NATO to provide AWACS planes in support of the American-led coalition against ISIL. But those NATO planes will not be going into the coalition per se. What they will do is they will backfill for coalition members to put their own surveillance planes in. But it was a direct request from America a couple of weeks ago for NATO to... Put some of its resources into this and it has said yes.
0: So, in the light of those surveillance planes, does it mean NATO is getting drawn into the fight against so called Islamic State?
1: I think it's a significant step forward. NATO has been, remained very hands off, but I have to say, the words coming from the Secretary General on this sound to me like NATO is trying to stay very hands off. The US Defence Secretary Ash Carter, uh, in announcing the AWACS deal, uh, said, you know, we're looking at it. AWACS, is that all? No. We discussed, he said, appropriate contribution of NATO as an alliance. He said capabilities like force generation could be provided. But the Secretary General, when I asked him about what he thought an appropriate contribution from NATO would be, he went back to talking about stabilising and capacity building in the region, in places like Tunisia and Jordan. He talked about Afghanistan operations being a wider part of that. And my sense is the difference in tone between Jens Stoltenberg and Ash Carter means there's this really difficult discussion behind the scenes about whether or not NATO gets more hands-on in this fight.
0: All right, James Hurst at NATO headquarters in Brussels. Thank you. Let's hear from BFPS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello, Christopher. Lots going on. Talk us through it. OK, last
3: night after dinner... In, uh, in, in Brussels. Uh, there were lots of corridor marginal meetings. And uh, one of the things that wasn't mentioned today was discussed, and that's Libya, and that is NATO forces getting directly involved. The other thing to remember that is one third of NATO forces are already mm. involved in the in the fight you know, from America to Britain. The uh, indication to, to the Foreign
0: Affairs Committee this week was that British forces would not be getting involved in an intervention there.
3: They wouldn't get involved in intervention, but they could be in there for example within training, but most important, if you remember what Special Forces uh, original role was was, was, was reconnaissance and intelligence gathering and what they have been doing mm-hmm. and what they have done already is produced a three-part report on CERT where IS is, is gathering at the moment and trying to turn it into a new Raqqa. Just
0: bring us up to date on the other deployments that have been confirmed at this meeting.
3: Well, the, 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 the main deployment, which started off also with a German request, which is, which is curious, and that is to send vessels to the, uh, to the the Middle East. Um, uh, three years ago, when I was working on this, and we put in a report too, which the Italians carried forward to an assembly meeting, and the Germans objected to it, and they said, you can't put these uh, NATO-type vessels in there or NATO under NATO command because this is not the role of NATO. NATO is not here to do things like that. Also, the argument was, once you send warships there then uh, refugees will come in greater numbers because they will know they get picked up. The traffickers will, will, will say to uh, more refugees, you must go because you'll be all right because they won't, sort of, uh, they won't ignore you. Um, now, this whole thing has been reversed, and when you see why it's been reversed at the moment, I mean, its it is, it, 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 it is it's a puzzle. Um, that, anything, that so little can be done.
0: Well, let's bring in a uh, naval historian and security analyst, Eric Grove. Good to speak to you today, Eric. What, what do you Hello. make of the, the Royal Navy deployments uh, being announced in the, the autumn?
4: Well, it it looks as if we're going to be be contributing to Standing Maritime Group 1 again, the old Standing Naval Force Atlantic. We mentioned just now Standing Maritime Group 2, the Mediterranean one, the old Standing Naval Force Mediterranean. And it's surprising we have not made a contribution to Standing Maritime Group 1 since 2010, which is a long time ago. What does it mean exactly then? Well, this is a joint... Well, a combined group of different different nations' warships it was set up many years ago during the Cold War as a sign of NATO solidarity, mm. so that you could get NATO forces deployed forward in a crisis yes. it 's been going on with other people 's ships, but now it looks as if we 're going to be sending Iron Duke for a month or two and followed up by a type forty five destroyer mm. uh, in, in the in the latter part of the year and this and, the, and I think that they 'll be operating in the Baltic. And this is a sign, a relatively small one, but nonetheless a significant one, that that in fact we are involved in NATO's activities to try and contain Russia uh, and protect the Baltic states.
0: And the Defence Secretary, Christopher Lee, said that uh, it was a sign that uh, we're ready to respond. Are we prepared to respond, though? That's the question, isn't it? Well, it's
3: a really a question of, yeah, I mean, it, it's not just the United Kingdom, but who brings this whole thing together, and that's the important thing. And I mean, Derek, uh, Eric was then talking about the old uh, uh, Stern F4 Land and Stern F4 Chan and et cetera. All the NATO commands had standing naval forces. In other words, they were there running all the time with a commander that, I think, uh, changed the rear admiral was just swapped every six months. And they were, and they were ready to go. And there was even a uh, uh, Iberland, which meant you were around sort of Gibraltar, around that area, which you've got to have now with the new standing force, too. Because don't forget, a lot of people trying to get across from Libya, which is no, n- no distance at all in, in, into southern Europe that way. And what you're going to do about ships, you can, there are plenty of ships to actually have this as a standing force because you don't need that many. What you do need is reconnaissance. You need airborne reconnaissance, short-range and long-range airborne reconnaissance. And then you need the ability to put smaller ships, small vessels, into either tend or to guide or report back. But you're not getting into a huge refugee gathering operation, which we saw... Uh, up until really last year. So,
0: so, Eric, when you look at overall the kind of announcements that are be coming out of Brussels from this NATO meeting, what's your assessment about the position of NATO at the moment and the way it's looking at the, the threats?
4: Well, it's split, isn't it? I mean, we have the problem. We have the problems posed by the Syrian civil war, the huge refugee problems, the the need to fight ISIS, and how far NATO, as an organisation, supports the ad hoc coalition doing that. And we've also got Mr. Putin. We've got the Baltic states, who, Iran, as a RAND study showed showed recently, it might only need sixty hours without reinforcement for the Baltic states to be conquered by the Russians, which would lead to a very serious crisis indeed. And so NATO has to show that it's robust on both flanks, both the, if you like, the northern flank in the Baltic uh, and the southern flank in the eastern Mediterranean.
0: Stay with us, Eric.
4: Sit-rep with Kate you.
0: Still to come, the Royal Navy's defective destroyers and five things the British Army can learn from Greek tragedy. BFBS Russia was responsible for one-fifth of the world's increase in defence spending last year. That's according to analysts at London's International Institute for Strategic Studies. Experts there have just published their 2016 analytical view on global military balance. Alongside detailed information on worldwide defence spending, it warns the West is losing its advantage in weapons technology. Charlotte Cross reports.
5: It's no secret that when it comes to defence, Russia is on a modernisation drive. Its most advanced weapons are on full display in Syria and its increase in defence spending during 2015 accounts for one-fifth of the entire global increase. The new generation and highly sophisticated T-14 Armata tank has already been unveiled to the world. Of all the countries covered in this year's military balance study, Russia comes out as the one to watch. Retired Brigadier Ben Barry is a land warfare expert at the International Institute for Strategic Studies. If
6: our MARTA's active protection system is successful, it promises to greatly reduce the effectiveness of anti-tank weapons fielded by NATO NATO infantry. Now, although I study what's going on in armoured warfare and the western armoured vehicle industry and western defence industry closely, what I see is some acknowledgement... Of the value of active protection systems and defensive aid suites to armoured vehicles. What I don't really see is an acknowledgement of the way that these could greatly reduce the utility of a whole range of anti tank weapons. And it seems to me that um, Western land forces might well benefit from a wake up call in this area.
5: That danger is just one assessment in this latest military balance publication, which covers defence activity in 171 countries. There's economic analysis, and it's interesting to note that of the 26 countries in NATO, only four reached their 2% spending target last year. The UK does meet the target, but analysts warn previous cuts have depleted capability.
6: If the British Armed Forces are to play their part as a credible deterrent to Russia, they've got to rebuild their conventional warfighting capability, but against a credible opponent in an environment where NATO won't necessarily control the air, won't have maritime superiority... And won't have electromagnetic superiority, all the factors of which applied in Afghanistan.
5: In the post-Afghanistan era, technology is playing a bigger part in modern military strength. Cruise missiles, unmanned drones and electronic warfare are all getting cheaper and more accessible, with increasing crossover with the commercial sector. James Hackett is the editor of the Military Balance Study.
7: To stay one step ahead the West has to think innovatively about new capabilities, not just new military capabilities but the intersection of civil and military capabilities, the combinations of capabilities that can shorten the procurement cycle and bring effective capability to the table
6: quicker.
5: For the last two decades, the West has made the core assumption that it has technological superiority, but according to the military balance analysis, that's no longer the case. Slowing down or even stopping that trend will no doubt become the focus in the coming years. Charlotte Cross for BFBS at the International Institute for Strategic Studies.
0: So, uh, Christopher Lee, when you listen to that, there's a lot of work to be done, isn't there? There's
3: a lot of work to be done that can't be done as well because what's happening, or what has happened in the past seven years, really, is technology has almost expanded at a faster rate than anybody imagined. And the technology that you can use in warfare, whether it be for communications, I-Star, or, or whatever it is, uh, and also the development, for example, we're hearing about a tank, a tank which actually, when a missile hits it, uh, sort of explodes outwards, and, and and the shredding of the of the of the casing of the tank goes in another direction. That was, in unimagined, in about sort of ten years ago. Now what has happened is this technology has to be inserted into a military system that exists largely in very very old-fashioned hardware. You can't simply do that. You can't simply say right. We'll get rid of our 1990 tanks <laughs> um, or, or our 1990. You know, we're sending. In, in in that deployment to the eastern Mediterranean, there's this a, is a Type 23 going. You know, Type 23. I've got more gear on my on my boat than that Type 23 has. That's the sort of <laughs> attitude you get. But presumably,
0: this is it was ever thus.
3: It was always this way. But during Cold War, say 49 to 91, as a, as a broad sweep, um, development was slow. You could, I mean, you, you, could, you could lay down a requirement for a, for, for a vehicle or a ship or an aircraft and be reasonably uh, satisfied that you can get along with that and you could match what the other side was doing. Now, it's not now the other so-called other side that's producing this technology. You know, some guy in a, some guy in a hut in Silicon Valley can develop something in 48 hours that will completely revolution the way that you, that you mm. intercept a missile or spot an enemy.
0: Eric Grove, um, Charlotte mentioned things there like about uh, getting back to the conventional warfighting capability. That was mentioned in her report and also new capability combinations. How do you translate that practically?
4: Well, I mean, it obviously, obviously, as Chris has just said, it requires a, cert- a certain amount of investment, modernisation of older equipment. We, we have had reactive armour for quite a long time, actually. Uh, I mean, and, and I think it's, sometimes one can overstate, uh, you know, the sort of novelty of things. I suppose it, it's the historian in me. But yes, it is a challenge, and it's a very important challenge, both qualitatively and quantitatively. Britain and the other NATO allies have got to invest heavily in conventional warfighting capabilities against peer competitors. And Russia is becoming very much a peer competitor.
0: Now, a new report is claiming... Close to half a million people have been killed since the start of Syria's civil war. The figures by the Syrian Centre for Policy Research suggest 11% of the Syrian population has been killed or injured, far beyond previous estimates. Russia, the United States, Saudi Arabia and Iran have met today in Munich in an effort to resurrect stalled peace talks. Christopher, any hope of that working?
3: Yeah, when you look at the figures which are much larger than anything the UN puts, the United Nations buts are, And that's because they're gathered from different sources, sources on the ground, which quite often the United Nations has to rely on sort of public <coughs> sources. But we're talking about 11.5%, if you say, the population killed or wounded. That's 470,000 deaths mm. in Syria alone. You've got 45%, that's nearly half the population actually displaced, um... Up on the border at the moment, just because of the action in in northern Aleppo, there are 50,000, if you talk to the Red Cross, 50,000 people just gathered there hanging around the border. You've got a mortality rate, which has increased from 4.4% per thousand, right? 10.9, 10.9, so it's, it's more than doubled in just, in just five years. Which
0: leaves us with, with the kind of, what is going to happen here? You look at the situation in Aleppo now. Last week we were talking about uh, raids uh, by the, carried out, supported by the Russians to the north of the city, and also the, 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 the coalition uh, bombing other, the, the, the anti-Assad regime on the other side of things. What is the situation now, and do you think we're getting to some kind of point in this war which is a beyond return?
3: What do you have at the moment in, in simplicity, if you talk about the Aleppo uh, area, You have Russian bombing, then with T-90 tanks, uh, which are Russian, uh, doing the follow-up to the the Russian bomber. Then you've got mechanized infantry going in. These are organized uh, uh, echelons going in. The people that are supposed to be the the defenders, the, uh, the, the 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 so-called rebels, feel they are being abandoned. Quite rightly by the Americans, they are feel they are being abandoned. We have how many times on this programme have we heard people say there is no military solution? The Russians are saying, oh yes, there is a military solution. Well, they're trying to, to do
0: the, bring one about, yeah, you know, aren't and they?
3: And it's here and now, and that's the important thing. But the Russians have got in. And the Western allies only have one group that they can trust of the Kurds, but the Turks, a Western ally itself, are saying, we hate the Turks, we won't go along, so we won't go to a meeting where the Turks, uh, the, uh, the Turks are there. The P- the Putin is saying what he is doing is effective, and so he is now saying, I propose a ceasefire... He wants a ceasefire starting the 1st of March. Now, we've got the meeting today with, with John Kerry and Sergei Lavrov, the, the Russian foreign minister in, in, in Munich, uh, and all the foreign ministers of NATO, for example, are gathering there. Then they'll go uh, on, on to... Uh, uh, Brussels, and see where they go from there. They ain't going to go anywhere from there, quite frankly, because no Western government is willing to do anything about it. So we then have to dodge through till next month, and then we've got the so-called NATO, uh, the the 17-nation the contact on contract group. And in the meantime, the Russians say, we just bomb that bit, hmm. and we'll send in the T90s, and we we'll clear it up. The ambition here is this, and very, very, very simple: that Assad is going to have to take part. In any peace talks, should there ever be peace talks at all, and the mm-hmm. Russians' uh, position is simple: we will okay. have uh, a third of the uh, Syria okay. uh, occupied. By another force and it won't be, it won't be the rebels.
0: Ministry of Defence figures show the UK's most modern warships the Type 45 destroyers have suffered more than 5,000 defects since they were launched the billion pound vessels are due to undergo full engine refits Rear Admiral Chris Parry says they may have cost a billion pounds each but they're not much use
1: There's no doubt that uh, you wouldn't want to go on the front line with these ships, they're totally unreliable in terms of their power supplies they have a fantastic above water warfare uh, capability but that's no good if it's breaking down every 30 minutes you need reliability you'll be able to rely on the technology uh, and if you're going to go in harm's way uh, frankly you
4: deserve better from your government and your service that's controversial eric grove your response to that well, Chris, as usual, is exaggerating. I know him of old. <laughs> uh, yes, yes, there have there have been there have been problems. Certainly, the basic problem apparently is with the recuperator, which is which, which is the attachment to the gas turbine engines, which which uh, transfers energy back into the system. It tends to degrade. It's meant for economy, so energy is not wasted. But, of course, it's operating at very high temperature. It degrades. And once it does, the whole engine is very hard to keep going. It tends to stall. And, it, and it's very hard to get going again. Unfortunately, the diesels were not made powerful enough to continue to propel the ship. And when a gas turbine goes, perhaps there might be only one on stream, then there is a glitch and the electric system fails... The diesels do come in automatically, and the electronics and a lot of the electrics come back into action. But it's not desirable, of course. I mean, I mean, you want the ship to keep keep going, and that's why the long-term solution is to increase the power of the diesel engines. They will be put in on scheduled refits, it's not going to be extra time out of service. Uh, and this will mean that the ships will be able to to propel themselves mm. on diesels as well as with the gas so turbines. So Chris
0: Perry saying they're not much use, but they obviously are because one's being deployed to the Baltic this year. They're,
4: they're the most effective air defence ships in the world. Even the Americans admit that they're better than their Aegis cruisers and destroyers. They can cover, admittedly, when the engines are working right. They can cover 180,000 uh, uh, square miles of airspace. They can deal with hundreds of targets. They can shoot down targets out to 70 miles. The radar is mounted much higher than in an Aegis ship, which gives it much greater range. You sail a Type 45 out Portsmouth, you can see every aircraft coming into every airport in southern England and as far north as Ski pole. I mean you can cover a huge area. These are very, very sophisticated ships it 's a shame that mechanically they mm. have, they have had glitches and of course, with an all electric ship, if the electric system goes down, then you have uh, you have got problems but as people learn how things go i'm sure the engineering staff who are pretty good on these various ships will find workarounds you know, which will make any kind of glitch you know as, what, short eric, as possible you
0: know what eric you know what i'm going to send you off to help them out eric grove <laughs> thank you very much for your time today that's eric grove military historian and security expert <laughs> North Korea's back in the scary bit of the news. Its leader Kim Jong-un has signed off the launch of an intercontinental missile prototype. His scientists tell him they are almost there with the production of a fusion nuclear warhead. We're now told that his military chief of staff, General Ri, has been executed for corruption. Are we really scared? Let's talk to a rare breed, a former British ambassador to North Korea, David Slynn. Good to speak to you today, David Slynn. How do we know what Kim Jong-un's ambitions are?
2: Well, to a large extent, we don't. Um, What we do know is that North Korea has had ambitions to develop an independent nuclear capability for a long time now. They've been working quietly, um, begging, borrowing, um, stealing technology, um, to 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 develop that capability, and it has been moving forward. Um, when I lived there, um, North Koreans were were, were very clear to, to, to me that they saw an independent nuclear capability as their um, only reliable form of uh, defence, the ultimate guarantor of their security, um, and they were they were determined to keep it.
0: What what do you uh, think he's up to?
2: What do you think he's up to? Well. But- I mean, I, mean, he, I, mean, I mean, as the technology uh, continues to develop, um, obviously it has to be tested um, if, it, if it is to be uh, um, moved forward and, uh, and made operational. Um, but at the same time, there is a political dynamic to this as well. Um, Kim Jong-un is young. he has only been in office just over four years. Um, evidence suggests that he's still trying to consolidate his power base and get his people into the positions that uh, yeah, he wants them in. Mm. He has called a party congress, uh, a Korean Workers' Party Congress, for May. Um, it's the first one for 36 years, so it's quite a big event. And the assumption is that you know, what we're seeing in terms of testing at the moment, um, although it probably would have happened in any case, it is being kind of choreographed, it's, it's being timed to, to make Kim Jong-un um, look strong in the eyes of the population in the run-up to that Congress.
0: So, um, this execution that we're hearing about, is that about him consolidating power and eliminating people who might threaten him?
2: Well, I mean, the first thing I should say is that um, we should be slightly cautious about um, such reports. Uh, they have they have surfaced before. Some of them, sadly, have turned out to be true. Some of them have, have turned out to be um, not true and the individual concerned has resurfaced and reappeared in the media um, a few months afterwards so um, let's be a little bit cautious about um, what uh, is being reported mm. but that said um, it is clear that in the in the four years that he has been in, in, in power um, there have been a lot of changes
0: and, and just, very br- um, just very briefly, David, I mean, h- how do you do diplomacy with somewhere like North Korea when you're unsure exactly what their intentions are and when sanctions really, well, they're self-imposed by the leader himself?
2: Um, it, it, it is difficult to do diplomacy. Um, it's diff- it is difficult to talk to people who, who don't want to negotiate with you. Um, you. My view is that North Korea is not in the market for any sort of nuclear deal that, uh, that the West would be able to accept i.e. I, something like the Iran deal um, what is happening at the moment, the, the tests that, are, that we've seen over the last couple, couple of weeks last mm-hmm. month, will inevitably force the, the, the international community to rethink its tactics mm-hmm. um, we've seen Seoul take a very important step in closing down the, um, the economic zone, or, um, near the demilitarized zone um, you know, we've seen Japan talking about getting tough, um, we've seen um, the, the US um, talking about kind of um, harder sanctions, mm. um, it would inevitably um, force the you know the the, the international community right. to rethink its tactics in dealing with North Korea.
0: David Slynn, thank you very much for your insight. That's David Slynn, a former British ambassador to North Korea. The ancient Greeks were known for a lot of things. Most of them are not taught in primary school lessons, but now it seems soldiers could learn a thing or two from the plays of ancient Troy. Well, let's talk to the journalist Matthew Green, who's been looking at how American soldiers have benefited from hearing readings at US military bases. Hello to you today, Matthew. Um, What have you been doing in the States?
7: I've actually not been in the States, but I've seen the American Theatre Company performing in London, Mm. um, which was a very powerful production. It's called Theatre of War, and it started a few years ago um, when a theatre director named Brian Doris read about the the really quite poor treatment that uh, US veterans of Iraq were receiving for PTSD, he thought he should do something to help, um, and he turned to Greek tragedies. Um, it, it's, it's rather remarkable that he managed to persuade US generals to allow him to put on these plays in these bases, but they've had a remarkable effect, mm. creating a space for a sort of collective catharsis uh, about what it's like to come home from deployment that, that has been profoundly healing for a lot of soldiers. And
0: why do you think that they're so good and useful in that way?
7: Well, one of the plays that the company performs is Ajax uh, by Sophocles, uh, which was written in the 5th century BC. Sophocles was himself a general in the Athenian army uh, and went through years of campaigning and war. So he knew very much uh, from from first-hand experience what uh, were the issues that his soldiers were grappling with. Uh, whether it was courage, self-sacrifice and honor on the one hand, but also, uh, the despair or, or, or guilt or, or or torment that we might call PTSD these days, that, that many of them went through on returning home.
0: And how likely do you think it is that the British Army is start, going to start staging Greek plays then? <laughs> well, the first thing I
7: should mention as well to clarify is that these aren't sort of epic productions with actors running around in, in sandals wielding <laughs> wooden swords, you know. Oh,
0: that's a shame. <laughs>
7: yes, perhaps... A, you might be disappointed to hear that, but they're, they're really very simple, pared down productions with three actors sitting at the front of a stage, reading different parts from these very powerful plays. Mm. Um, so, so they're not big kind of budget productions by any means. Um, but I, I think personally, it would be wonderful if some of these plays uh, were performed, um, you know, I think the thing to stress is that they create a very unique okay. space in the discussion yep. afterwards, where the kind of boundaries around rank and hierarchy All right. are allowed to temporarily dissolve. Matthew Green, very, very powerful. There
0: we must leave it. Thank you for your time. Uh, anyone listening wants to do that, get in touch with us. Um, Christopher, your your favourite Greek play?
3: Um, I suppose it might have been Agamemnon, mm. when he decided to get try and get Helena try back, and then we had because of that we had the Trojan Horse. And that all seems to me to categorise the defence ministry. It's not what it seems, (laughs) and it's full of a load of people. If you let them out, they'll do you the most damage possible.
0: Christopher Lee, we have to rely on you, don't we? Uh, That's all we have time for today. Don't forget, you can listen again. Just search online for BFBS SITREP Podcast. Thanks for listening. Speak to you again this time next week. Bye-bye for now.
5: Of British news, sport, and entertainment for the British forces overseas.
0: This is BFBS Radio 2.